Bridge the City. You're listening to Bridge the City, a podcast recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas. My name is Kyle Hagee. And my name is Benjamin Rangel. And we're both advocates for progress. Our episode today is on the education system. This episode will be divided up into two acts. The first one will be more of a panel interview where our guests are in conversation with one another. The second act will be three extended interviews with people working closely in the education field here in Milwaukee. And the origin for this episode really comes from our experience working in education directly with students over the last two plus years and just seeing that the, the system itself is complicated. Our previous episodes, they were interviews with one individual that lasted about 30 minutes. This episode, we wanted it to be more broader in scope. This really is the idea we originally had with the podcast to listen to a lot of different experts in the fields, curate all that information, and give a broad overview of a topic we think is very important to cities, this one being education. Yeah, and we were really excited to be able to sit down with as many guests as we were. The wide spectrum of knowledge and backgrounds. Yeah, the conversations were great. Uh, I think we originally told all the guests this episode would be up by Thanksgiving. I think they thought we meant Thanksgiving 2017, <laughs> uh, but now we're here in 2018. Uh, we we went on the Supreme Court trail and kind of put put this uh, on the back burner because the primary is coming up. But we're really proud of the episode and we're really excited to share our opinions and the opinions of the experts. And we will let the guests introduce themselves now. Yeah, let's hear from them. My name is Cynthia Elwood. I am a professor at Marquette University, and my role now is to honestly raise up future principals. I'm also the director of graduate studies for the educational policy and leadership department. My name is Rachel Morello. I work for Milwaukee Public Radio, and I'm the education reporter. My name is Israel DeBruin. I'm the director of communications for Schools That Can Milwaukee. We engage, empower, and connect transformational school leaders to foster more great schools for the kids who need them most. So a common question that we asked most of our guests was what makes Milwaukee unique? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is the choice environment. And actually what's so interesting is that when I was in Indiana, they thought they had the oldest, longest running choice program in America. Mm-hmm. And then when I came here, I was hearing the same thing and I'm like, okay guys, let's get this straight. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, here we really do. And it's yeah. so problematic it makes the world feel, the education world here feel really siloed because there are so many people trying to do similar work. Just a matter of like, they fight for the basic needs to do the work. Money, you know, and like attention and support. That's the number one thing that comes to mind. The choice environment makes Milwaukee feel really different. Also just our demographics. I covered Indianapolis while I was in Indiana and they're obviously at being the urban center of that state, they are more diverse. But Milwaukee is um, even more so than Indianapolis, you know, black students, white students, Latino students. The Hmong population, I had no idea we had such a big Hmong population. And I think just the political scene in Wisconsin and how in higher education too, not just K-12, decisions made in Madison affect what happens here so, so strongly. And not just funding Act 10 and how that still pervades teachers' unions and what teachers are able to do. I think the reason why Milwaukee is important is because this was one of the very first places in the country to try some of the things out 
that have become a little more commonplace. Mm-hmm. And Milwaukee used to be much more unique than it is now. Milwaukee was home to the very first private school voucher program in the country. And we were an early adopter of charter schools subsequently. We were also early on in decisions to let students of the traditional public school district choose from multiple uh, traditional public schools and magnet schools and things Mm -hmm. like that. And so pretty much you name it, when it comes to um, things that people sometimes label as education reform, Milwaukee was either the very first or it was among the earlier adopters of some of those things. So Milwaukee has always been important for that reason. It has become less unique, as I mentioned, as other states have adopted some of these practices. And I think in a lot of cases, these other places have had the opportunity to learn from what we did wrong, or, uh, or, or at least to improve upon some of the things that we did. And I think that as a result, Milwaukee has been, has sort of stagnated in a lot of ways, in my opinion. So again, whether or not you agree with the school voucher program as a concept, there are other states that said, we want, we want to do a voucher program also, but we see that there are some big problems with school quality in Milwaukee, that the, the voucher program by and large is, is home to just as many poor schools as mm-hmm. any other school sector. And so th- when, when people elsewhere decided to institute a voucher program of their own, they looked at that and they made decisions designed to head that off. Uh, and those are decisions that we have, uh, we have not done here for a bunch of reasons, many of them political. Yeah, I don't know whether it's unique. In in some ways, it mirrors what's going on in um, other communities. When we talk about choice, the choice we don't talk about is the massive choice of people moving to the suburbs. So the kinds of schools, people who have that kind of opportunity experience are far different from the choices that are available inside the city of Milwaukee in terms of sort of the educational resources available to kids. On the other hand, what goes on in many schools in the Milwaukee public schools is so far superior in my experience to what um, even a very strong high school in the suburbs can offer. My daughter went to Rufus King High School, mm-hmm. and there's a vibrancy in a multicultural school, you know, a school that has students from so many different backgrounds and there's a zing in in the air and Rufus King was by no means untracked. I mean there still is a lot of work to do to make sure that every single kid at Rufus King gets the kind of excellent education that the school is capable of, the you know essentially the full IB program. But I would not trade that experience that she had for anything. So she had that advantage of both having a really excellent academic preparation and having a window on the world that was richer um, for as a result of having participated in an urban school system. So something that was made abundantly clear to myself when we were interviewing all of these guests is that you don't need to personally have a student going to school. You don't even need to be working inside the school to one, care about education, but two, to make a difference. There's all of these other entities that make up a, a well-functioning city, and all of them have the potential to positively affect the education system in Milwaukee, and all of them should feel a sense of duty to do just that. Here's Rachel on the role of radio in that regard. Part of the mission of public radio is to educate. 
And part of my mission is not to take sides and to just present the fact. So I do have to say this is the grade that the district got. But then I can also say, look at this school. Here's what the parents say they like about it. Here's what parents say they don't like about it. So I feel like my role is to help point out everything and let everyone else make up Mm. their mind. But I can't present the good without presenting the bad and vice versa for the other systems too. Mm. The thing that I have not brought up is because of the way our city is structured and how segregated we are, it feels like it's a community thing too. I don't talk enough as a reporter. I don't think we talk enough as like the wonky people in education about what happens to a kid in the morning before they come to school has a lot to do with how they perform. You can put two kids down the street from each other in the same classroom with the same great teacher, the same lesson, the same length of their day, and one of them had breakfast in the morning and one of them didn't. And that could make the difference in how they perform on a test that that they're given at the same time. And we have all these conversations all the time around parental engagement and the people who show up to conferences are typically the parents that you don't need to be talking to and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And I think that has a lot more to do with it, but that's so much harder for a school to control. And then you get into the argument of how much of the kid's life is supposed to be helped by people who aren't in their family. <laughs> like, yeah. how much is the teacher supposed to do? How much is the principal mm-hmm. supposed to do? Are they supposed to just deliver the lesson and then let the kid go? And Or are they the ones driving them home? Are they the ones giving them breakfast sometimes in the morning? Mm-hmm. It's such a complicated question because you want to help them grow, but where does that end? And ultimately, this conversation has to come back to those in the classroom, the teachers. And we are curious as to where do you draw the line between where a teacher becomes more than just an educator, uh, whether it's texting the students beforehand and making sure they're showing up on time, or providing lunch or food throughout the day. How far does a teacher have to go beyond just teaching? I think that there, there aren't very many teachers out there who have that mindset of, I'm just here to teach content. I think that most teachers want to do whatever they can to help their students succeed, including getting them to school. I think that in a lot of cases, it's there's there's one of three problems. The most common is probably just that that teacher is so overwhelmed and overworked that that even just one extra thing like sending a text message, which to to us right now sitting around this table sounds like what, what why wouldn't you just send the text message? But after having been a classroom teacher, I will tell you that there are so many things exactly like that that will take thirty seconds. Compounded, they are hours worth yeah. of work. I think number two is there are teachers out there who would love to do this sort of stuff. They don't know where to start. They don't have a plan. They haven't been turned on to some of these strategies. And so again, while it might be, it might feel like for us, like, oh, well, texting the kid is a no brainer. Like, I bet you that there are teachers out there who it's just not occurred to them. Again, because they're so overworked, they're so overwhelmed. They're not thinking about stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But, But I think, and again, this is my bias because our organization is so focused on school leadership. I think that the number one barrier for this stuff is there's not a school-wide vision and there's not a school-wide plan for it. What I described earlier where you have, you know, the administration leading the charge and saying, everyone, we're going to make attendance our number one priority right now. Here's what we're going to do. Here's how it's going to look. 
here's why you should be excited about it. Here are some tools to help you do that. And then we're going to talk about it and we're going to check up on it and we're going to celebrate it. And, you know, there's going to be exciting stuff for the students and exciting stuff for the staff. That's a totally different environment to try to work on this in. Um, I think if we had more of that, we would see more improvement. Let me just say that there's never in the history of education been a single person that makes a school great. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it is never one person. Fundamentally, what a great principal does is to mobilize everybody in that school, parents, kids, teachers, Mm -hmm. other staff, around a common mission. You know, a mission that has real moral import and a mission that is about doing right by the children and um, offering them opportunity and make and shaping them into, into human beings that are going to make the world better. So that is the primary role of a principal. And we spend a lot of time in my class, um, I have a class called the principalship, and mm-hmm. the first thing we study is the issue of integrity. What does it mean to, you know, to live a life of integrity? And uh, we, we look at a couple of different theories, but it means that you do have a moral core, and then you have to act on that. Mm-hmm. And what it means to be a person of integrity is to walk the talk, and to walk the talk about something important. We also work on what does it mean to sort of pull a community together and how do you engage people to feel like, you know, to, to participate in this, this joint endeavor. One is that you really, you had, on the one hand, have to give them a sense of autonomy. And now I'm co- quoting Pink, um, who talks about autonomy, mastery, and purpose. I've already talked about purpose. People mm-hmm. have to feel that there's something we're all driving for. And that is, to some extent, something that comes, you know, from a leader. A leader has to believe it fiercely themselves, but it also has to be something that the other people in the school contribute to shaping. Mm-hmm. Mastery means that you also give people an opportunity to get better at their at their craft and what they do. So they have, you know, they know that what they're doing is important, that it has meaning, that it's going to make a difference for the children we're serving. And then I really do believe that a principal, no matter where you operate, has to really face the boundaries of race and class that exist in our society. And you have to um, know how to cross those boundaries. And it's never possible to really truly understand somebody else's experience, but you have to understand you may not know what you do not know. And that when, when a kid doesn't perform, to blame it on the kid is not going to solve anything. You have to understand sort of what's what is the child experiencing, what are their parents experiencing, whatever it may be. It's not about, um, oh, well, those poor people. It's like, you know, what am I not understanding in this conversation? Or, you know, how can I better explain something? Can I engage um, students and see their assets? One key takeaway is that there is a narrative to what MPS is as a district, and it's not necessarily always a positive narrative. The narrative, unless you've been in a school and seen it for yourself, is most likely going to be inaccurate. And there are people working every single day to prove those negative narratives wrong. Dr. Driver's working hard to do that. And I think the way that she's trying to do it is by highlighting individual schools. Because if you, to get really like policy wonky, if you look at the district report card, yeah. you, you get one picture of 155 schools. Mm-hmm. If you look at each individual school report card, it's a totally different... I mean, some of them are still not great, but some yeah. of them are great. So I think their approach has been to highlight the schools that are doing good work, whether that's they had 95% attendance all year long, and that's yeah. something they've been working to improve, or their math scores improved, mm-hmm. or yeah. they have, um, they've got good partnership. So I think that's 
the strategy that they're taking and that's the narrative that they push to the media like come see this great program come see this awesome event we're putting on here come meet this teacher who just won this award and if they're gonna change the narrative that's what they have to do because otherwise people who have never been inside an mps school just hear mps and they see that one score they don't see the individual highlights or the individual successes they just they just hear the, the bad zooming out a little bit to our schools the schools we work directly with and just good schools in general um shining a light on those schools is really helpful. So there's a, for a long time in Milwaukee, there was some um, some ignorance and some denial about the types of problems that we had when it comes to schools. And there's a lot of bad things to be said about No Child Left Behind. One of the good things that you can say is it really allowed people to understand what the problems were in, in school districts across the country because it forced leaders to disaggregate their data by by type of student. So by race, by income status, by special education and English language learner, all these things that we really take for granted now. Um, there were a lot of places that weren't doing that at all or weren't doing it to the extent that that law required them to. And so it really, for for the first time in a meaningful way everywhere, showed us what the achievement gap was and what the the progress or lack of progress has been in terms of um, addressing it. And I think that that's a good thing. However, I think we overcorrected a little bit. And we got into this headspace where all we ever do is talk about how horrible things are here in, in regard to our schools and in regard to education. And there are people out there who think that if you are a young person who has a kid that is nearing school age, it's time to move out to the suburbs because there just aren't good educational options in the city of Milwaukee. And that mm-hmm. is false. Mm-hmm. That is super untrue. There are really great schools in Milwaukee public schools. There are really great charter schools. There are really great private schools that are part of the voucher program and not part of the voucher program. Um, we need many more to be sure. Um, but at this point, we we risk shutting people down and making them feel like there's no hope for progress, that this is just impossible. And so what we need right now is more than emphasizing the problems, I think we need to help people understand that success is possible. Not only does the narrative around what MPS is need to change, but Dr. Elwood talks about how the narrative around people of color in this country have to change, particularly in MPS students of color. We see our society in a lot of ways going in another direction right now, right, where... Um, we're really becoming more polarized. At the same time, there is, um, I think people don't recognize that in this, a lot of people don't recognize that in, in this country right now, there is just a, a renaissance of African-American intellectual thought. Mm-hmm. There is a real intense, thoughtful intellectualism going on. In my experience, I've seen it over two generations. So you have people like Prudence Carter and Teresa Perry and Claude Steele and, and people like that in sort of the older generation. And then Teresa Perry has a daughter named Imani Perry, and she's mm-hmm. in there with Michael Dyson and mm-hmm. ta Coates and Christopher Emden, where they're really launching a critique that I think is incredibly substantive and exciting. Mm-hmm. The trouble is, our kids don't get to get a chance to see it. The vast mm-hmm. majority, and I'm not just talking about the Milwaukee Public Schools, I'm, I'm thinking all over the country, mm-hmm. The challenge we have, and Teresa Perry actually writes about this, the challenge we have is to surround our kids, whatever their color, whatever their their community, Mm -hmm. um, with examples of intellectualism, 
um, of people of color. Um, and clearly, African Americans need to see examples of African American intellectualism, but they also need to see intellectualism um, of Latinos and so forth, um, and vice versa. One of the things I think we need to do better is to um, make sure that our that our teachers have the kind of ethnic studies background, so that they, you know, can pull out of their pockets a really provocative short story or an article or you know something like that. Mm -hmm that speaks to the very content they need to cover, but in which our kids see, see themselves and their communities, you know, as well as other communities, mm -hmm. you know, sort of really see the contributions that people of all colors are making. Before we finish off Act One, remember, sound bites aren't solutions, and it wouldn't be Bridge the City without some action steps. Speaking up mm -hmm. when you know things to be different is mm -hmm. really important. I think Darian Driver's leadership in Milwaukee Public Schools yeah. is awesome, and she is accompanied by amazing people, some of whom are in my program as graduate students mm -hmm. and are you know training to become leaders, whether principal leaders or, or curriculum leaders or whatever. And I am committed to this program here. If somebody wanted to be part of that or support that or come participate in it, that would be great. I just think that people need to, to speak up and act wherever they, it is that they're mm -hmm. situated. There are places people can physically go to see this happening and to, to change their mindset and to bring friends and neighbors to have their mindsets change. Mm -hmm. And so we have a, a site on our webpage that advertises for those. We also, through our social media accounts, um, promote those dates. That's a great way to support a school and it's a great way to support our organization. But, you know, if you're somebody who's into Twitter or Facebook, find those schools that are doing great work, follow them and share their stuff. Help get the word out there. Talk to people. And when you hear somebody who's like bad-mouthing schools in Milwaukee, like across the board, you can then say to them, hey, actually, that's not true. Just a couple weeks ago, I was at this school. I was at Milwaukee College Prep's 38th Street campus, and I saw for myself that this is a school serving um, almost entirely kids from low-income households, and they're doing outstanding stuff. That's that's really powerful. And then zooming out another level to this sort of citywide thing, it's just engagement is the most important thing. We continue to have incredibly low turnout for school board elections. We have incredibly low turnout for the elections where we elect our state superintendent of public instruction. And whether you think the people in those roles are doing an outstanding job or not, the, it's, it is not good that we don't have a, a more representative sample of the community that is engaging in the conversation around those elections, understanding who these people are and what their, their positions are, and then, and then helping to make a decision. The school board is a good one. There are parents and there are people who are always at them. It's set up where every month it's, I think it's four committees, each has their own meeting, and then they all gather as a full board at the end. Mm. But it's the committee meetings where the stuff actually happens. Mm. They'll have listening sessions, which are also open to the public. Another action step is Google stuff, if yeah. you don't know. There's so many resources out there to educate you about education. Like I'm thinking of when I started my first job and couldn't, I needed a glossary, like I really did. But that's where the internet is so helpful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And that concludes Act 1. I hope it opens your eyes to some of the complexities of the Milwaukee education system. And also how thoughtful the people operating inside that system are. But don't stop listening. No. Bridge the City is not done. We always have to continue to advocate for progress. <laughs> <laughs> because we have an Act 2. Act 2? 
Act two, and in this act, our guests will dive deeper into some of the intricacies of the education system, including how parents go about selecting a school for their children and how to fill the gaps in the education system. We'll also cover the concepts of big citizenship and the role of public education in a well-functioning democracy. And finally, we'll hear about the importance of early childhood education, and even Dr. Seuss will make a rare appearance. Enjoy Act 2. I'm Kelly Scherer. I'm the program director at College Possible. We are a national organization that helps low-income students get to and through college. And so we work with them starting their junior year in high school and all the way through to their degree completion. Going after the degree divide where we see a huge inequality between the students who are high income and receiving bachelor's degrees and those that are low income and that receive, there's a huge gap. When you were looking at where to send your own children, Mm -hmm. was that a conversation that you had with them? And then also, do you think for people that might not have the time to like research Mm -hmm. what schools are best, Mm -hmm. does the system disadvantage them in any way? Yeah, I'm going to start with that question because I think hugely so. Without having a master's degree, I'm not Mm -hmm. sure I would have been able to figure it out, right? (laughs) So like I, and and I would say, I think that information is harder to find now than it was when I was first sending my kids to school. And so I knew where to find the individual school report cards where Mm -hmm. I could find information like uh, mobility, how many students each year turned over. That was important to me. Diversity was really important to me. And I could see the breakdown. I could also see the breakdown of ethnicity with Um, their academics on the state test. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that I was in a place that was really talking about the achievement gap. I knew where to find that. um, And I know most people don't. My husband as a college graduate was like, I'm glad you're doing this because I had (laughs) no idea. And you have to fill out that information in January before the year that they start. And then you just have choices. And like, we didn't get our first choice school. We Mm -hmm. got our second choice school. I felt like I was determining the rest of his life. Even after you're able to select the right school for your student, you have to think about what resources are available for the school to spend only on education alone. That in and of itself is is kind of an essential question that those of us interested in education should be asking. Frankly, our whole country should be asking because does it make sense that places in higher poverty then have less, they're using their budget toward all those other things and not just educating a student because they have to psychology major so i go back to maslow's hierarchy of needs right like if you are homeless and hungry you can't think about geometry Mm -hmm. that is just Mm -hmm. the way it is right and because of that then the school system is kind of forced into providing kind of most essential needs for students whether or not they have the resources for it and so then all the resources that maybe other wealthier school districts can use toward academic support have already been siphoned off into spaces that yeah our basic needs next kelly's going to talk about americorps but before she does we want to preface it with a personal anecdote yeah, I, I think for much of the podcast, we spend a lot of time letting our guests speak because they're frankly more interesting. But we haven't really talked about what brought us to Milwaukee, and that is AmeriCorps. It's this idea that young people with, with energy and passion and idealism can dedicate a full year of their life to uh, serving a community. Both Ben and I did two years of AmeriCorps with College Possible here in Milwaukee. Yeah, and I think uh, I can speak for both of us by saying it was one of the most impactful experiences of our lives. So here's Kelly talking about the role AmeriCorps plays in College Possible. 
So in many ways, it is the programs that are already connected into the school systems mm-hmm. that can be a really good place to go, depending on what your particular interest is. As College Possible, and we're in all three different types of schools, the charter, the choice, and the public schools, and we are doing that very intensive kind of whole person idea of working with students to get them to and through college. Mm-hmm. If kind of a college education is something that people are really interested in, we're a good direction to go as far as being able to either financially support or find out ways to go see what some of the things that are happening. If you are young and a graduate of college and you would like to do a year of service with us, we actually, the majority of our team has never been in an education classroom in their life as far as a major, like that most of our folks are in some sort of, you know, sociology, communication, criminal justice. We've got lots and lots of um, people from different backgrounds mm. and different places. Um, and so would always encourage people, if you're interested, to give a year of your life to give back to the yes. community, whether it's through College Possible or through other places. But it, that's a wonderful way where there's a system already set up mm-hmm. to be able to kind of walk in and start really making impact. Yeah. And we hear over and over from our previous AmeriCorps members, our, our folks that are in the schools and, and working with our students that they the impact that they were able to make and the ability that they were able to have relationships and change students lives in one year is absolutely incredible and will change their life forever on the topic of doing a year of service in americorps college possible is not alone in the belief that building up young people providing them with the opportunity to serve their community will ultimately lead to bigger better things for the city of milwaukee so we decided to speak to another leader whose organization is utilizing the power of youth. My name is Miralis Hood, and I proudly serve as executive director of City or Milwaukee. Our mission is really to build big citizenship, right, in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. And we want to make sure that young people have an opportunity to serve their country through active service, right? And and in this case, it would be through the education sector, tutoring other young people, our students. And then we also want to make sure that our students achieve at high levels, right? So we also want to close the achievement gap and really increase graduation rates. Uh, There's a graduation crisis in our country, and we use active service as a way to close that gap. Marilise briefly mentioned big citizenship before talking about the mission of City Year. We wanted to follow back and see exactly what she meant by big citizenship. Big citizenship for me starts with protecting that democracy and thinking about building that democracy, right? And then teaching young people to question. Big citizenship is questioning things. Big citizenship is looking at things with a critical eye, but then also like not in a cynical way, not in a like I hate the world way, (laughs) in a way that's more solution and idealistic and Mm -hmm. like passionate about that right so what we want is for our core members to be transformed by their year of service in a way that says okay i've had an experience in an urban school i see things maybe in a different way than what i saw them before i want to build this country in a positive way i want to build this democracy and i also want to keep asking questions and i also want to have that open mind and I also want to think about what's my part of the puzzle? Like, what do I bring to this table, right? Mm-hmm. What do I bring to this country and what can I give? And I, I think it's so fantastic when I see our core members leave City Year and we've got 
we've got alumni that are serving um, as like journalists across the country, right? Asking yeah. really good questions. We've got alumni that are serving on school boards. We've got alumni that are senators. We've got alumni that are teachers. Like doing their part to build this country and make it better. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that's that's what I think about when I think about big citizenship. Do you think that the culture we have in America dissuades people from becoming teachers? I mean, I think of like other countries and sometimes the, the respect they have for teachers is a lot higher or the position of being mm-hmm. a teacher is like really revered in their yeah. society and maybe not so much in America. It's interesting because I come from that culture, yeah. right? I'm Puerto Rican and um, in the Hispanic cultures, we really do revere our teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I taught in a school that was 98% Mexican students. Mm-hmm. And the parents, I mean, I was like la maestra, you know, they revered me and they treated me like I was like the queen of the, it was fantastic. (laughs) I was like, what? Um, I come from that culture. I come from the culture where teaching is a beautiful profession and I come from a family, a legacy of teachers. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. My mom said that to me once. My mom has always carried herself with a lot of presence and a lot of pride for what she does. And she said that to me once. She said, you know, in America, they think that we're teachers because we can't do anything else. Mm. Right? She's like, they think we're dumb. Like, oh, you're just a teacher? That's because you can't be a lawyer. You can't be a doctor. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, poor thing kind of thing. She's like, but not not where I come from, right? So in our countries, we don't look at it that way. We look at it as like, you're the top notch. Um, So yeah, I do think there's a sense of conversation that has to change. The respect we give our teachers says a lot about who we are as a society. But what does it say when we don't value all children equally? I totally believe in free and appropriate public education, Mm. right? I really, really believe in public education. I believe it's important. So for me, right, I was a teacher in a public school. Mm. And it's very important that my children go to public school. That's the way I was raised, right? So my mom was a teacher in public school. We all went to public schools, to MPS. And I do, it does hurt me a little bit when I meet an educator, um, a public school educator whose children go to a private school. It, mm-hmm. it does. It breaks my heart just a little and it starts to chip away because it does make me wonder, what is it that we're providing our children, mm-hmm. right? The children of our city. Why aren't mm-hmm. we valuing them the way we value the children in our homes? Why aren't we giving them that same love? Our next guest has been covering Milwaukee and its education system for decades. My name is Alan Borsick. I work at Marquette Law School. I'm not a lawyer, but I do work on publications and events and what we call our public policy initiative. In the mid to late 90s, I started, I got involved in a project the newspaper did about Milwaukee Public Schools. I just started to get more and more interested in that as a focal point for me. I thought it was very important. I thought it was when done right, which I don't guarantee it is all the time, a public service to to have good education coverage because it Mm -hmm. just informed people more, starting with parents. And I just thought it was interesting. So it more and more became my focal point. And I try to not be a partisan, especially not of any one sector or cause. Um, I I regard myself more as uh, like the color commentator in the booth. I'll be glad to talk about how the the game's going and what what the team needs to do in the second half and how the quarterback's playing today and Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. But I won't tell you fundamentally whether I'm rooting for the the Packers or the or the Bears. Yeah. Except uh, I'm in favor of good schools and opposed to bad schools. Alan added valuable insight by stressing the importance of early childhood education. You say what can we do to make the lives of kids from birth to four 
or five better around the city. I, I was pretty disappointed as an observer that there's really nothing in the new state budget to deal with early childhood. When everyone knows that not only is it important, not only is it a huge need, kids walk into kindergarten with the achievement gap largely in place. That what you see when they're in 10th grade is almost identical to what you saw when they were walking into four-year-old kindergarten. So not only is the need huge, but there's quite a lot of work, and it's fairly persuasive, that it's a great investment. That public policy uh, would support saying money invested in supporting early childhood pays off 6 to 1, 13 to 1, 20 to 1. You can get different numbers, but all of them are very positive. Some people may feel removed from the conversation around education because they are either out of school or don't have school-aged kids. But it uh, turns out you should care, especially given changing demographics in America and how that corresponds with current education outcomes. If you're, say, 30 years old and you plan to be on planet Earth for another, oh, 40 to 60 years, mm-hmm. um, you really kind of have some reason to care about how things are going, mm-hmm. especially for the part of planet Earth you might end up on is the Milwaukee area. At a time when all the students in American schools, K-12, to the majority are not white anymore. It's now... Roughly 50-50 white and non-white. So what does that say? If non-whites aren't doing very well and the percentage is going up, this isn't very promising in the long run. Alan is about to mention interesting statistics in regards to poverty and educational attainment. And I think this is a really key point to highlight on how the education system does not exist inside a vacuum. And any system inside a city or a state or a country does not exist inside a vacuum. And there's a lot of factors that go into educational attainment outcomes. And one of the most correlated is your family's income. In some cases, even in third grade, the higher performing students are performing three and a half grade levels above the average, and the lower performing students are performing three and a half grade levels below the average. The points that Alan brings up really ties in this education episode into the broader picture of system-wide and systemic institutions that operate inside Milwaukee and the country as a whole. One of the things I hear a lot is this is all about families and bad parents and bad households and bad neighborhoods and uh, multi-generational poverty. And there's a lot to that. There's no question of it. If you look at the state report cards, the main data guy from the DPI, a presentation he did where he had a chart of the socioeconomics of school districts and the report card grades of the schools in those districts. And it was overwhelmingly clear how much they correlated. Mm-hmm. I mean, that poverty and problems in schools do go hand in hand. Our conversation with Alan wasn't all about poverty and the, the grand challenges that the Milwaukee education system faces. We did have a chance to talk about some things that were a little bit lighter. Expand maybe what is your favorite children's book? I'm sure the listeners would like to. Well, I've I've got quite a number. I really like children's books, and I was big on them when I was a kid. Horton Hears a Who has a whole bunch of really important character and, dare I say, moral lessons that I really like. Horton cares about little people. Physically little, but also just that a person's a person no matter how small doesn't have to mean only physically. So that whole message and, and defending them with great commitment and integrity I'm taking it way too seriously, except I really like that. And the insensitivity of the world to such people. And then ultimately, the who's trying to raise a racket 
and the, the, the littlest goo who's, that the mayor finds him and takes him to the top of the tower and he lets out a yop and the yop puts it over and you say, mm. well, that's a kind of a cute lesson. That's the one I focused on here, yeah. that raising your voice can make a difference. That brings us to the end of Act 2. Uh, we just want to say that we found everyone in the education sector so welcoming and willing to chat with us. And it's really a testament to how many passionate and considerate people are, are transforming the way students learn throughout the city and how the education scene operates. And we want to give a special thank you to the guests that appeared on this episode. Rachel Morello from WUWM. And congratulations on the new job, Rachel, at Prairie School in Racine. Israel DeBruin from Schools That Can Milwaukee. Dr. Cynthia Elwood, the education policy expert at Marquette University. Uh, She also reached out to us to have us thank her colleague, Dr. Robert Lowe, who really put her on to this idea of having choice from moving outside of the urban area to the suburbs. And he is an expert in that field. Please check out his work. Special thank you to Kelly Scher with College Possible, our former boss, uh, my current boss, Meralise Hood from City Year Milwaukee, and, of course, the one and only Alan Borsick from the Lubar Center at Marquette Law School. So we really hope that this episode was enlightening. Our guests really provided a lot of great action steps, so please get involved. Reach out to the organizations you heard in the episode, volunteer a year of your life for AmeriCorps, or just find some way to get engaged with the education community. Hopefully you saw how important the education system is in not only transforming children, but its ability to transform cities at large. Of course, as always, subscribe to our podcast. Give us a rating. Uh, We are pretty close. I just got off the phone with Ira Glass the other day, and he says we're catching up to him in terms of uh, subscribers to This American Life. So that's big news. You can always find us on our website, www.bridgethecitypodcast.squarespace.com. We are also on Twitter and Instagram. Most importantly... The reason we wanted to do this episode and the reason we got involved in education in the first place is about the students. So just keep the students at the forefront of of these discussions that you're having going forward, especially recently with the amount of leadership we've seen from young people throughout the country and protesting and advocating for a better life and a better future. I think it's really inspired um, the country and especially Kyle and I here as well at Bridges City. For sure. And and oftentimes when we give students a microphone, they're much more intelligent and much more poised than we give them credit for. So in the spirit of that, we want to have two former MPS students and current Marquette students, Deja and Alexia, lead us out today. And as always, let us know how you helped bridge the city. I'm Deja. I'm Alexia. Education is the one thing that someone can't take away from you. In order to get, educate others, you need to be educating yourself. And I think that's important because then you can just to be aware. Like, having an education um, allows you to be aware of what goes on in the world around you. When you're around that much culture, like, my all my schools are pretty diverse. You learn how to, like, not change the way you are, but you learn how to accommodate to somebody else's... Yeah culture you learn how to ask questions without coming off as like why is your hair like that like you learn you just learn and it's from a young age yes by the time i reached elementary school i knew about all different types of cultures i think it depends on like what you value whenever you um whenever you look at like education like i got like the like that relationship with the teachers that like i like value and stuff 
at the same time, like, I got to learn. You know, like, my family and stuff, before they sent me to Pulaski, they were like, oh my god, such a bad school, that's such a bad school. I mean, yeah, there is bad sides to it, but, like, ultimately, I think, like, um, it did, like, kind of shape me to be um, the person that I am today. The people in my elementary school said Christopher Columbus was good, and then I got to middle school and they said he was bad. And my cousins from higher schools were only taught about like good things to do. He didn't do anything good. Yeah. He shouldn't have a holiday. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We'll bring you back to some pod.